0: And we are live. How are you doing, man? What is
1: up, my man?
0: How are you? I'm I'm good. This is the two hundredth episode. I am very honoured to have you as the 200th episode E, seen as though you said you've never been on a podcast before.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation. I've, I've never been on a podcast before, because I normally say no to all invitations. I try to really be focused and and center around the businesses, but I figured that a 200 episode of you was like the perfect occasion to actually come, jump in and discuss whatever you want to discuss. <laughs>
0: Well, we've, we've got all sorts I want to discuss with you. So we've got the whole thing about self-mastery. And you said you didn't want to call it self-mastery. You wanted to call it peak performance. And we'll, we'll get into that. We had a little bit of a discussion before this about stoicism. And I want to talk about that. And there's all kinds of other stuff I want to talk about as well. And I don't want to do the usual thing of saying, who are you? Where are you from? You know, the whole boring backstory. But mm-hmm. I do want to know a particular thing about what made you get to this. So why why did you start Self Master? Why did you start your uh, a kind of a business about self-improvement, peak performance?
1: That's a good question. Um, because I needed it. Um, this comes from uh not so long ago well a few years already back i was an architect i had absolutely no job prospects absolutely no thing going on because that was bef- after the last crisis we had right so there was a 98 uh, re- reduction in market for architects right nobody needed us mm. so everybody uh just emigrated but I have spent most of my years at university working abroad. So I didn't really want to go back to China or go back to Brazil. I have already been living there for years and I wanted to build something in Spain. So I had to learn new skills and I had to really get into full throttle uh, at an accelerated pace. And I was lucky enough to get into a consulting, a big four consulting that, let architect work for them right because that was not usual but I sucked so much at the beginning right because i didn't have the skills it was hard i was not really into the mood of working that many hours so i devised a system that worked for me right and i was tracking my performance over the years and i was like taking care of what was I eating, how and I was trying to find my own cause effect relationship depending on my nutrition, on my sleep habits, on how do you structure do how do I structure my day. And I was reading all sorts of books yeah. um, to try to come to the perfect formula for me. Right. And it worked very well. It worked well, because I went from it was pretty quick, like in 20 months, I was already in the private industry. And that's what self-mastery came about, right? So the idea of really pursuing the best self, which is one of the most important um, uh, annals or, or goals that the humankind has, right? All philosophers talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a natural flourishing of the human striving, right? That's what we all want to be. But I was forced by a circumstance, so I just devised a system to do it better. Not better, but faster, right? Which uses basically data. right which is why it works so you
0: focused on you mentioned food as well so you focused on food and activity basically holistically you looked at everything
1: yes because i'm big on complexity science i believe that it's the best framework to understand the human condition right i believe the complexity science were complex systems and we cannot rely on one side approaches to fix a problem that has a multivariate um solutions, right? So Mm -hmm. every time you see a productivity focus coach trying to teach um, a new tool or a new system to somebody that is going through a divorce, it's just not going to work, right? Because the mind of the person that is going through a divorce is just not there, doesn't really want to care about the tool. In the same way, if somebody is have very low energy levels because his habits are not just there, maybe he's, uh, a lo- he's overweight by a lot. So there's a bunch of things I want you to fix first before really getting him into three or four hours of flow per day, right? So I've always approached this from a holistic or a system thinking type of perspective. So if I see myself or myself or anybody else, like a system, I know which parts, like my job is to identify the part that is missing. What's the bottleneck here? What's actually not working? Is it a sleep problem? Is a nutrition problem? Is it an emotional problem? Is it a mental problem? Is it an overload problem? Is it a cognitive problem? Maybe, maybe I don't have the skills or I don't have the capability to judge if I have the skills. And this is how I basically created Um, uh, this, well, again, and then I went to the private equity industry and then I started leading teams and I had to hire people and this was really fun because, um, I was hiring a bunch of people and some of them were not qualified at all, but I just had a hunch, like they were probably good fit. So I just hired them. And even though they were not even into the real estate industry, uh, they didn't even know anything about architecture. So they didn't even know about buildings. They may be from marketing, but they were very good at picking up skills and they, they could become high performance in a very short period of time. And at the same time, I had all the folks that had all the requirements, had the finance background, architecture uh, running through their veins. So somebody that was really qualified to be a good real estate uh, private equity worker. Mm. And they, they, they were not good at all. So, what was wrong oh. there? And that's how I actually started improving the system. Okay. So here, that's what I started considering all the variables that to me were not relevant at that time. For instance, the importance of self-esteem, the importance of operating from a higher degree of consciousness, like the system that I now teach and use with the people, with people in submaster try to encompass as much aspects of the human experience that we are familiarized with. Right. And that's how it grew grew really at some point. I just, I was still in the product industry and said, listen, I think this is pretty cool. We've been holding a system for six years so far. It's worked for me. It's worked for other people. Do I really want to be investing in real estate forever? Or should I try to build a company around this topic? Cause I've been already been investing in startups for five years. So I also have like a little fun with friends. Um, so I knew all the mechanics about how to build a startup. Well, I thought I knew, you know, it's way harder than I thought it will be <laughs> right. And that's how self master came about. And I was um, the very thing that I say that I, I resigned from the private equity job that I had as a director. I was at home and then it just struck me the name self master. I said, oh, that sounds pretty cool. So I called my sister who who works in London said, yo, does this look as cool as I think it does? <laughs> and she said, I mean, she's Spanish like me, right? She said, "I think it does." So I, I just went and registered it, and that's how I, that's how I came a, how I came about. Um, yeah. I gave myself three months to to get some revenue and check and check the idea, right, and find product market fit, which is super super short period of time. But mm-hmm. I, like I knew who I had to target because I was targeting the same type of folks that I've been working with, right? And I got there. In three months, so I never came back to the private industry, and now I'm building a, which is, it's a e-learning company, right? So we offer um, consulting services, but more importantly, we have like a proper program yeah. that is uh, basically based on cognitive science, psychology, neuroscience, and complexity systems, right? Complexity science, and we are updated, and we have a head of research that is in charge of that, and we're continually putting people through the program. And we gear that towards entrepreneurs because they have more time and they can really uh, structure their own workflows and how they, how they organize their day with more flexibility than the average corporate worker. Mm. Or, although we have both, both types. So. And that's how it came about.
0: <laughs> there is so much to unpack there. But <laughs> something really struck me there with when you were hiring people, and you you said you started to figure out um you you alluded to trying you'd figured out when somebody you knew might be the right fit what was it that you noticed in those people even though they didn't have the skills but you knew they could get them pretty quickly what was it that you discovered in those people is there kind of any traits common yes. personality traits that run through people
1: i think there's two things one is to be very quick on their feet like one of the things i i never really learned to hire anybody like i never really read any book on hiring i had no friends in the hiring in the art hr industry so i was blind here i was trying to delucidate who could be a good fit based on what i believed i needed and in the end what i thought is okay I believe somebody that is able, cause you know, product of defense. normally uh, ours was a boutique one. It was small. Uh, they're not more like three, four five, six people mm. for, the, for an investment team. I'm not talking about the, 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 the sales team. So I need somebody that it's very complete, has a lot of like not on brain power, but skills and stuff. But I was willing to compromise on their perceived skill level related to the real estate industry if they were able to be very quick on their feet when I was asking some outrageous question during the interviewing process. For instance, I don't know. I can't recall exactly, but I remember there was a girl who I asked, um, how do you believe the current market conditions in China, no, in Colombia, because she was Colombian, are affected by the trade wars between usa and china Mm. that's i i didn't have a clue myself right that was too hard of a question uh too much to unpack but the way she like there's like several approaches to that question one is i have no fucking clue which is the wrong one to take well not that's the second worst to take the worst one is say something and then not being able to back it up it's bullshit basically that's it's bullshitting your way off and the best way there is to decide that I don't know, but I can check that out. Or, well, I have no idea, but my clue is, or my guess is based on these two or three data points. Yeah. And the best people that we hired were able to think in that way, which is a little bit like management consultants think, right, they're doing analogies and extrapolations all day long. Mm. But I don't know, because I've never been a management consultant. But my point is, That's trait number one trait. Number two is having the courage to actually say something to Mm -hmm. not freeze out. Right. So imagine that you invite someone up in a room full of suits, uh, people straight out of college. So normally people freeze out Mm -hmm. because again, we're not a, a big company. We're doing it ourselves. And that's the thing that gave me the perception that some of them could have, could be very quick on their feet to learn. To ask. And then in fact when I left the, the product industry, the person that replaced me was the same guy that I hired. He <laughs> raised it to the director position in two years and a half, which is impressive. Right, because he was groomed into the into the position because he was super fast learner. So confidence
0: and quick thinking. Yeah. Basically. Yeah.
1: And, and and be willing to be wrong as long as you're wrong for a reason right mm. you're wrong because you tried and you had a guess that it was based on two or three defining factors who may very well be wrong mm. but the internal logic of the argument is still right
0: yeah well i think which it, it comes from a place of confidence doesn't it if you've got the confidence you're not you you're not too bothered about being wrong because you you know F- wholeheartedly that you're wrong or you don't understand that situation. And you'll be very honest about it. It's the people, ironically, who have less confidence that aren't willing to say, I don't know. They're, they're just not willing to say those words and then extrapolate. They'll just try and bullshit you, those people, mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. don't have the confidence because they think what you want to hear is just words, don't they? So they just those kind of people yeah i guess confidence and then thinking on your feet it it really covers it but how you how do you develop the confidence i guess you wasn't really concerned with it at that time but i guess you are now
1: well to me there are two types of confidence at least related to this particular situation right one is what we call self-efficacy so you're understanding like you know that you are capable of doing x Mm. it's not self-esteem it's not self-worth it's self-efficacy i know that i i know that i can get through this even though i may not be qualified enough and self-efficacy is highly correlated to entrepreneurial success i mean you need to be you need to be absolutely confident, or at least have enough confidence on your ability to figure that things out. Mm. Right? So, being high on self efficacy is very convenient. But another way that I like to look at things is from more an like existential point of view, meaning, and this maybe ties back to a stoicism, you want to um, uh, take that box, but, and Steve Jobs discussed this quite at length, we're all going to die at some point, right? And the person who came to the interview, he had one shot to actually make it count. Mm. So that confidence can come from knowing that he is able to funnel pl- through and get the answer right or just, okay, I'm here. What's the best thing I can do in this moment, which is I've been waiting all my life for this moment. So let's make that count, right? So it can come from two ways. Yeah. Both work as long as the... As, there's a reasoning behind it. I I, I like a story
0: about Steve Jobs, particularly about Steve Jobs when he hired a designer called Paul Rand. You you may or may not have heard of him. He's a really famous designer. He's dead now. Um, But he's done work for IBM, uh, Ford. He's just a huge graphic designer. And Steve Jobs in an interview, he got asked, how was it working with legendary designer Paul Rand? And we we think of Steve Jobs as a guy who never backs down, don't we? And, you know, he, he's painted as being a bit of a monster in the media and things like that. And the one thing he said about Paul Rand that really struck me is, one, he was miserable, <laughs> and but I respected him. And he, he told this one story about when they first started working together and Steve Jobs said to Paul Rand, are you going to give me options to see, you know, in this design relationship, I want to see some options. He was making a logo and a brand for Next at that point when Steve Jobs had left Apple and he'd gone to make Next. And Paul Rand just said this to him. He said, I'll give you one option and you'll pay me and it's your choice as to whether you use it or not. That's that's all Paul Rand said to him. And Steve Jobs said, okay. Uh, and he you see he's painted as as like this guy who never backs down from a a thing and you'd think steve jobs would go against that but he said in the interview he respected paul rand's confidence at this point paul rand had been a designer for 50 years or something like that he was at the pinnacle of his career and I, i think it's a perfect example of of that efficacy thing that paul rand knew he was good at his job and he knew he was going to give him one option, even to Apple, well, not Apple at this point, but Steve Jobs, big deal, came from Apple. He still wasn't going to back down. When he got asked that question directly, he just said, no, nope, one option, it's all you're getting, and you can choose to use it or not. I, I love it. It's a perfect example of
1: it. It is a perfect example. They say that uh, to the novice, there are a multiplex of options, but to the master, there's only one. And if, if Ramt has been in the design industry for 50 years, he was already a superstar. Mm-hmm. Then he was obviously way more qualified than any around to provide an educated, um, educated proposal, especially if he was actually risking there was cap there were he was risking his career there because he had to provide a good product, a good design after 50 years in the industry, right? It could not be shipped. Because if you are at the helm of your career and that's where you do your worst work, people are going to notice.
0: And at at that point in his career as well, at that point when the conversation was going on, he won't have had a clue what he was going to make for Steve Jobs because that's the initial (laughs) business conversations. But he knew with 100% confidence that the first thing that he was going to show Steve Jobs was going to be the only thing that he showed Steve Jobs. And he ended up using it. Next didn't really turn out how, how it should have done. But the brand was really cool. And Steve Jobs said he absolutely loved the work. Uh, and he never gave him any options. <laughs> I, lo- I love it.
1: I love it. I lo- I, did you know that uh, Steve Jobs had a quote said that they were in, at Apple, and I guess in the rest of his companies, there were two categories of things. One were insanely great. And the other one was utter shit. So everybody was, um, encouraged to do things that were insanely great. And the reverse side of that is that you could say that things were shit just by saying that maybe they were not insanely great. So they were scrape everything that was not judged insanely great. When you up your standards that much, you just drive performance up across the organization. Because that's, that's one, of, one of the keys of, of increasing performance across any system, especially of the human, especially human nature is by constantly understanding that your performance of today, your, the highest performance of today must be the standard um, of tomorrow, right? You cannot go below, right? Mm-hmm. And that's how you actually increase capacity by pushing through and really expanding that performance of yours, right? But you need to be absolutely clear on the need for standards. And and Jobs is a prime example of driving insanely high performance in every business endeavor.
0: Yeah, when I've been on a couple of other podcasts before, I I do a lot of things. I'm prolific, as some people might say. And every time I'm on a podcast, they always ask me, how do you get so much done? And I, I got sick of just answering, I just do and focus and discipline and all those kind of things and I started saying that it's actually a a work capacity thing to your point which is something that I've built over time I started 12 or 13 years ago making something every day for 365 days and then kept piling on top of that process so my work capacity expands and my efficacy doesn't go down but it isn't it isn't that someone could come along and do what I've done immediately. Oh, well, they can't. I've done that for fifteen years, so it's yeah. and it's been a slow rise of that capacity over that long period of time, and and that's basically what I, what I did. I I never dropped below a certain level of work capacity, and I, I do that every day.
1: And. I would argue that it's not only about consistency, but it's also about deliberate practice. One of the key mm. key concepts here is you're not only you're working every day, but you're constantly updating your work every day, and you're learning, and you receive feedback, and you're working in public and sharing your work, so you're getting feedback comments from outside, so you're getting better at your craft at an accelerated pace, because you have more data points than somebody that's starting a couple of years ago. So I always tell uh, our clients that, cause as you might imagine, we have a lot of people that want to be Elon Musk, right? Mm. Folks that really admire these great entrepreneurs said, well, it's not only 25 years that separate you, it's 25 years of deliberate practice, a hundred, a 20 or a hundred hours a week. That's true. Cause I don't really believe it. Um, so it's not because in my view, Somebody that is so driven as as Musk, for instance, so it can be Steve Jobs. The same is the same example. The same yeah. kind of person, right? So driven. Those twenty hours, those twenty years, are another person's lifetime, yeah, or, or maybe more, Absolutely. right? So it's it's really about delivering, practicing your own performance or skills.
0: Yeah, it's why that that year years of experience is is just not really valuable for most people. Is because you look at it and think okay, well, he's got five years of experience, but somebody with one year of experience who's been working way more than that person could have the same level of experience as someone with five years. I see it a lot in the design industry specifically. A lot of people still hold on to this idea of after five years, you're a middleweight designer or things like that. But when I was at college, I was working like 12-hour days learning design and working as a designer, and doing freelance work, that kind of accelerated level of experience is way different to somebody who's just learning at college, right? It's not the same level of experience.
1: Of course it's not. And, and, and remember the, the story of, of turning from architecture to private equity in 20 months. That proves the power of accelerated learning with a learning curriculum and a performance system, right? So it's the same example. I totally agree with you. But that's why technology is such a pernicious force in our, don't get me wrong. I mean, the unhinged use of our devices, obviously technology is a positive force for good, but like to us, to to anybody that is not concerned or is not self-aware enough of the amount of time that it's easy to spend on a device, Well, basically waste his life because the rewards of deliberate practicing a skill, your performance, your goal of really putting in the hours of analyzing your performance or your skill skill acquisition methods to understand what's actually drive driven progress that releases very low dopamine, way lower than a tweet or a fab or now RT on a retweet on Twitter. So if you do not control yourself, then you cannot del- you cannot deliver practice in your life. So you'll always be kept in, in a very superficial um, level of skills of experience, of performance. And that really drives me nuts because it's, it's wasting your life really.
0: It, it, it drives me nuts and some people I follow on Twitter as well. when they're tweeting, I know we said we wouldn't talk about Twitter, but I want to make this point. I see people tweeting about the amount of followers they've got or whatever. You know, that they'll put a tweet out saying, oh my God, I've got 3,000 followers in two months. It's like, who gives a fuck? That's not what matters. To get those amount of followers, you've sent way, way too many tweets and spent too much time on Twitter. You could have been learning a real skill with that same amount of time and grown slower on Twitter, but learned an actual thing that could turn into something later on in life it's like you said it is is the it's the cheap the cheap mean hit versus the valuable one that is actually going to progress you as a as a person achieve self-mastery
1: mm-hmm. absolutely. absolutely i mean but how do you get past it? that brother
0: but how do you get past it how do you become aware of that that you're in that situation
1: well there's two types of or well, at least that I studied, and I believe, and we teach two types of really learning from experience, right? So one is the slow accumulation of wisdom. So you over time, you read, you experience, you meet people, you get coaching, and these folks sediment on you a new you understanding, yeah. and you're progressively transform and modify your worldview. That's one way, and that's the ideal way the second one is the disorienting dilemma when you're hit so hard that you need to rethink everything. Right. And that happens at a few key moments and we all have those, right? I guess. But the ideal is to not go through that. So for instance, I believe, I suspect, I don't know, I hope it is, that there's probably less Twitter addicts um, among those that have children that among their young lads, hopefully that this is, there's a correlation here, right? Because I mean, the brain, both of the, of the woman and the man change. If there's like, there's the brain opens a new set of hormones and there's a brain reconfigurations and you suddenly care a lot about your children, right? Even, um, you probably heard this people that never really want to have any type of relationship with children because they don't like them because they want to die alone or whatever. And they suddenly find themselves with a child and say, oh, I actually love this creature. Why? Because there's brain that rewired itself, right? That's <laughs> evolutionary um, uh, evolutionary psychology, right? Yeah. So that's, even though this is not a good example of a disorienting dilemma, it's just that normally is very painful and cathartic when you are, whether fire you from a job or somebody close dies or a friend dies doing stupid shit so you stup- uh, stop doing drugs whatever it is right but i guess that as society progresses as people age as new experience accumulate it is easier to rein in the pernicious power of technology but probably some never do i don't know i have i don't have the answer right but to me, it's very obvious because I, we've worked with people that couldn't really focus for more than 10 minutes and we drove that up to two hours, right? And that was painful as fuck. Sorry, because of my French. But um, it took... It's it took As much as you fucking want. <laughs> but in this case, and I'm thinking, uh, it took a total reframing of his habits, right? To actually get to that tape. But that, that's, that's hard.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> I, I think for me... I've always been a contrarian on some level. I don't even know where that came from, but I've always been one of those people. In fact, I probably do know a bit where it came from. I've always been one of those people who sit outside of regular society. Um, the ginger hair thing helps because <laughs> at school I got teased. So you're, you're, a, you're sat outside of popular society, really and that means that you don't look at things the same way as other people look at them. So when other popular kids are doing stupid shit or whatever, you're not you don't even get to be part of it just because of that's the way it is. And as I got older and became I got into metal music and started listening to rock music and started painting my fingernails black and things like that, you go you go like anti-society and you go into your own subculture. And then that kind of developed my contrarian attitude to pretty much anything. So for me, when, whenever I do anything, even like Twitter, I, I see myself being pulled into the popular way of doing things. And, and it's, like a, it's like another sense or something. I don't know what it is. There's just something there at the back of my mind where you just do it for a little while. You feel yourself getting pulled into the way that everybody else does it. And then all of a sudden, something pulls you back and you sit back because of my contrarian way of thinking and being, which sometimes is not very useful, but a lot of the time is very, very useful. So mm-hmm. for me, it's being a contrarian way of looking at things. It's, it's looking at the way everybody else does it, me not wanting to be like that, and that usually serving me pretty well. Uh, mm-hmm. you, th- you think of any high performer, really, they usually got quite a contrarian way of looking at things. And there's, there's definitely a disproportionate amount of people, uh, people like Mark Zuckerberg, well, particularly in tech, people like Mark Zuckerberg, people like Elon Musk, all these people being contrarians that aren't normal people, right? There's, they're just different in some
1: way. Well, I think that there's a nature versus nurture debate there in the, in the tech industry, right? Because um, as your responsibilities grow, as you need to, like your cognitive load on your system is, becomes bigger, right? So you need, to, you need to really start prioritizing very well. And there's a lot of responsibility, a lot of money at stake. So you naturally become different. So you may have been different at the start, but you're definitely different at the helm. Because as Andy Grove said, which is one of the most famous chairmen of IBM, only the paranoid survive, especially in business, especially in tech, where the changes are lightning fast, right? So it makes you paranoid because everybody wants to eat your lunch. So there's probably a two-way street there. Probably only those with a slightly paranoid tendencies try to really, and high performance driven type of highly powered males. There are normally males that have this sort of attitude, um, get to that helm, but then that gets intensified by the medium in which they operate. Right. Mm. That's totally normal because they are responsible for a lot of families and shareholders and stuff. So they better be high performance. But to them is easy, right? Because I was thinking about that. I'm really motivated by the SMB, the small and and medium businesses, right? The the folks that they don't have access to coaches. They don't have access to frameworks. They're never being exposed to what high performance is and how to get there. And more importantly, how to sustain it, right? Because the problem with, with performance is that it means a different thing to all oh, up to, to each one that is in the medium, right? To to some, it's just physical performance is being in shape and um, sleep eight hours and drink a lot of water. That's, that's cool, but that's not enough in business. That's not enough because you need what I call cognitive performance, right? So, uh, avoid, uh, getting prey of stress, being able to prioritize, being able to focus, being able to discriminate between competing ideas and understand payoffs that's really, really powerful. And it's what I call framework installation. Right? I, I I always say that the most important thing or the highest leverage thing that you can do is to install a different framework in somebody's mind. Right? And Karl Marx and Lenin knew a lot about this when they installed communism on in Russia in Russia, well, Germany first and then Russia. And and I'm very motivated by somebody that actually interacts with in our case, with some master content, right? And they say, like, oh, fuck, never thought about that. Oh, hang on. So if this is true and you guys are proving me that this is true, then what should I do with, well, then this leads to this decision you have never envisioned before, right? Because the big tech guys, they have everything at their disposal. Yeah. Right? Do you think Jeff Bezos takes it? And, and takes decisions? Of course he doesn't. Well, he stepped down now, hasn't he? Yeah. And he's... Uh, I wouldn't like to answer his personal life decisions, but my point is, there's too many brilliant people that can really uh, take on those decisions that you're not you're not risking that much. Yeah. Right. I don't. Know if you, my, my point is clear in, in this no, sense. I,
0: I, I know what you mean, and when you when you get to that kind of level, you've already got so many good people around you anyway that it's mm. it's easy. And also, and I don't know whether you were actually making this point, but it's worth making too that a lot of people like Elon Musk and like Mark Zuckerberg were already given a leg up anyway before they even mm-hmm. started. They, they were surrounded by mentors and leaders and let's face it, lots of money. They were surrounded by all of these things already. So they, they were never a normal person as such. They, they never had to figure it out.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I I, I believe that it depends on the amount of value that you you create. Obviously, being born in the right place at the right time, fed the right food, and sent to the right school, it's obviously going to help you in the long run. But when you're talking about people that have basically changed the way the world works, then all credit on them, right? Mm. I'm much more uh, bothered by the trust babies and those, those people that are donated a lot of money from their families and they do nothing. Yeah. Or if they, they, they want to live the life, they just set up a family office and that's it, they call it quits, right? So the, the goal is to generate value and you always, even though, and I, I agree with the, with, with the core idea here, when they have your back, everything is easier. When you have been taught since, you were, since a very early age how to really think. In business, it's much easier, but that guy's still gonna take us to Mars. It's no easy feat, right? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think our, probably our points are compatible. How much yeah. of it? How much of it do you think's luck, though? Well, um, I don't know. In the case of Musk, or in mm. no the case of what? Yeah, I don't, th- uh, brother. I think. He is as special as it seems like, I do think he is one of a kind, just like probably jobs was, um, he is really one of a kind because not only he is, he has proven it time and time again. Right. But he is able to hire and retain the best talent in the world. Mm. And as I always say, a players do not play for B teams and B teams do not have A coaches, right? So if number one is a high performer, then the rest of the organization is going to be a high performer because high performers, companies are not killed by the C performance. We all know who they are and they end up going away, right? Their performance pitfalls are addressed. The problem is the B the B guys, right? The, the guys that are lukewarm, they they do their job, but don't really excel. They just, they, they just do good job. They don't do insanely great job. Mm-hmm. And Musk has been able to hire and retain the best talent across three different companies for 20 years now. People that most of them are still there. And even though they're probably doing some shitty things. We've got every now and then there's an exec that is out of the company. So there's probably not, everything is as clear and pristine as we'd like it to be, but those folks are still working a hundred hours a week. That's what they say at least. And they're still going to work for him. So I believe he, I believe he's a real deal. Mm. I may be wrong though, but I would definitely, and, and Jeff Bezos, of course, is, is also a very, 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 very good leader. Yeah. Right. But while Bethos has decided to live his life in a totally different way, retiring at 54, to pursue adventures, whatever, but I don't think he's ever granted, or probably in the last decade, as much as Musk has. Has, because you can see the physical deterioration of Musk. It's obvious. Yeah. He is putting his body and mind in the service of what he believes humanity needs. And just... And, and having someone that actually does that without doing harm, because all the biggest villains in the history of humankind, they were doing things for the rest of us. Yeah. But that involved killing other people, right? No, this guy is actually building a company. So I think it's very positive. It's a net positive on the world.
0: Yeah, I, I think it, it's the old cliche, isn't it? It's you're at the right place at the right time with the right people. And in in his instance, it's also the right person which is Elon who's a once-in-a-lifetime guy maybe once in a million lifetimes guy who's and what I think is the most important has got a purpose he's, he's going to take us to Mars He he's, he's just there isn't a clearer purpose is there it's, it's similar to with jobs and also to a point with Jeff Bezos when he was first starting the company they all had the purpose that big clear purpose that they couldn't be removed from and it didn't didn't matter what happened they were going to achieve it and they all had that clear singular focus that they
1: could just say that's where I'm going and that's one of the absolute keys that the human that humans we need them as aristotle said that we are teleological being Thelos, being goal and Logos being uh, knowledge. So we need goals in order to live our life. And because of that theological nature, without goals, there's nothing we can accomplish. Nihilism just kills, rotors the soul, which is why we need to actually find meaning in what we do, no matter what that is, right? Mm -hmm. And here's just two comments to do, to say here, because to me, that theological nature of human beings is the basis and the core of high performance, right? Because a high enough goal is going to be a good enough driver of high performance because high performance have lofty goals. You would never see a guy that is absolutely very good at, I don't know, playing chess a couple of days a week. No, that's not how it goes, right? He's fighting to be the best on earth until we colonize Mars or he is, just not really serious about that, right? So we need to find that purpose. But it's also very important to note here because a lot of people, and this is a very pervasive mistake, and nothing is going to kill you faster than getting this wrong. And it's the expectations game. I find it quite a lot when people ask me, well, but I'm too late, but I'm never gonna be Elon Musk, they tell me. I said, well, what what would you like to be Elon Musk, right? Elon Musk is you. He's another person. You is you. You are you, right? Mm. And this sounds like pretty obvious and basic, but most people get this wrong. More people think, well, but, uh, I, I'm just I'm 35, 37, 32, 27. A guy told me I'm 22. It's too late. It, what the fuck? I'm 15 years, <laughs> right? It's just trust me, not right. But my point is that trying to chase the wrong goals because you, they're mediated for, by something or someone else. It's going to kill you faster than anything else. And what only matters, I believe, and that maybe that's where this is more like ethical um, discussion. And we're entering the realm of personal beliefs. And Christianity revolves around this concept quite a bit. But it's the struggle. The struggle mm-hmm. is what actually frees you. As long as that struggle is towards a worthwhile goal, yeah. something that you've chosen. And once you get this right and you understand that this is really it, it doesn't really matter what you're trying to achieve. It can be be a good partner or it can be build a hundred million company. It doesn't matter. As long as you really devote your heart and soul to fulfill that self-selected objective. And that's when you win life, in my opinion. I 100% agree. As
0: soon as you said struggle, my eyes lit up because th- <laughs> that's exactly the way I see it. Discipline equals freedom, as Jocko says. Um, once you find comfort in uncomfort and you constantly put yourself in uncomfortable situations to, to grow yourself, there's no other feeling like that. And Mm -hmm. you've got to constantly find ways to do that and never, never really rest, rest on what you've already got. Never rest on your laurels. Absolutely. Keep, keep pushing and pushing and pushing and 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 updating yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And, an easy way that I've found that's, that's worked for me is, is just doing something every day. That's, that's been my process for such a long time of doing a small amount of something every day towards a bigger goal, improving a skill, basically, doing something every day because it lets me focus on the process. It lets me be uncomfortable every single day. Like the building in public thing you said as well, that also makes you uncomfortable every single every single time you do it but it has values bigger than the single effort that you're putting in on that Mm. single day once i started to realize that that really yes the bigger loftier goal in the future matters it's really about the process and being comfortable well uncomfortable but also comfortable in the process every single day that
1: i agree you've won. That That's it. You, that's it. You don't need anything else at that point. And you see it. And I totally agree. And that's when you, when you really like the process and you don't care about failure because it's just feedback and you're just trying to outperform your old self, which you embrace as part of you. And that's it. That's who you were. And you laugh about your past performance and think you're a fool, but now you're more than happy to up that standard and get to that next level, and actually track through data that that next level or that lower level had these data points, these KPIs, and the next level has the other KPIs, and that's how you improve, right? One of my best examples of, that to me proves that this is the way it is, uh, even though in Twitter sphere will, wouldn't agree, maybe. I, I wrote an, an article the other day, yes, because Bear with me, because the story ends up on Twitter, obviously. <laughs> I wrote an article the other day. Um, I, I was grasping the idea of the shadow by Jung. Jung basically says that within ourselves, there's a part that is deemed ugly, dark, that we don't like to face, we don't like to show. But the easier and better we are able to integrate that shadow within our own life, the easier it is to become who we truly can become. So we cannot not face that darkness. And that comes from young 80 or 90 years ago, right? And I was thinking the other day about a very good example of a successful and an unsuccessful shadow integration. And that comes from the world of MMA, which I'm not uh, a fan, I'm not an expert, but I'm definitely an expert, or at least a huge fan of high performance. And I've been studying MacGregor for quite some years. And to me, the way he lost the other day against Poirier is the epitome of an unsuccessful shadow integration. Because if you listen to his interviews while he was climbing up the lava, he is using all that willingness to win, all that ambition, all that uh, not unfitness to the task, this to, to, to fuel a sense of mission. He always said, my career is a career I've never been done before. and I'm happy with that because I'm going to win because nobody has won before. And it's the perfect time for me to prove that it's possible, which is why everybody loved McGregor. His story was very good. He was a very good trash talker, and we all wanted him to win because it was a great example. Of course, and it was a good story. And he demolished Poirier uh, in 2014 in the second round, I believe as he said he would do. And he destroyed that guy. He destroyed it mentally. That guy came home and couldn't really fight back or be back on his feet for a couple of years. He mentally destroyed that guy because the way that the fight erupted or ended, right? But then McGregor became a double champ champ. Then his loss for money or ambition or greed, he went to fight Mayweather. And over time, as they were not more goals for him to conquer, because he was not process-driven, and that's when he discovered he was not process-driven. He was goal-driven. When he lost against Kabib, his world shattered. And now he has probably become uh, not, not that agreeable, folk hitting people around on the streets around the world, right? But the other guy, Poirier, who lost five, seven years ago, has been ruminating his comeback for seven years. And he has used that same shadow that grew in him because of his first loss to fight back, face McGregor, and win, right? And there's a lot of things that could be an argued. And when I, when I discussed about it on Twitter, there was people saying, dude, you know nothing. This is because of the leg kick that the guy used. Yeah, he okay. shut up, mate. Right? It's not. But that but you get my point, right? So to me is when you are process driven, if mcgregor would have stayed (laughs) process driven, he probably would have been able to uh fight back Khabib. possibly. I don't know. And even if he lost the fight, he would have been back in six
0: months and won a match. That would have been the difference. Exactly. Because he would have known losing is part of the process. And he would have been back, he would have shrugged it off and gone. But Khabib, Khabib is an interesting example. I, I completely agree with everything that you said. And before you got to the point I was about to say, it's because he didn't have the goal anymore, that, that was the thing. He wasn't working towards it. And it was when the Mayweather thing came around, that's when he flipped, it was for the money. It's when he made the whiskey, it was for the money. And that's when things changed. I've got everything. What else have I got left to do? That that was it. And that's... He, beginning of his downfall but Khabib he's always been process driven you can see the way that he fights you he's very uh, systematic in the way that he fights he's he's from a place where they train multiple di- times a day brutally and he was he's the best wrestler in the world and he retired be- before it arguably he probably reached his peak he was always process driven and that's why he kept winning because he, he went into the ring, uh, and the ring was no different to the training. He was just performing the same systems, the same routine, over and over. It didn't matter who was stood in front of him, ever. He was just there to do his job, basically. And every single fight was the same for him. Um, I, I think underneath that, if you were to look further, it's also probably the two different styles of where they came from. The nature and nurture thing again. Mm-hmm. McGregor comes from, I think it's Dublin. Dublin it. in, in Ireland, uh, Western society. He came from a rough council estate. So he's got none of the things that we've been talking about in built into him. He's got no understanding of a process. He was very good at punching people and he got better at punching people. But I, I don't think he ever really understood the true meaning of what that meant underneath that. It wasn't a martial art for him. It wasn't about mastering yourself. It was about generating a skill that he was very good at and he realized he was very good at it. He could go to the top of the world with it and he did. And that's a different kind of drive. Ultimately still took him to the same place. But with Khabib, it was just a thing that he always did. And his culture that he came from wrestling is a damn tough sport probably the toughest sport in the world and you train hard you train harder than you fight every single day look at his ears and Mm -hmm. it it was never any different for him when he got into a ring he was very stoic he never got pulled into any kind of drama or anything it it was just it was his job it was every it was his entire being basically Mm -hmm. you look at mcgregor there was the whole the cult of personality behind him as well, the kind of the suits, and he became bigger than his personality. Mm-hmm. Khabib, it was about the job, and it was always the job. Uh, massive difference between those two. Really. And
1: that's what really differentiates in the end true performance from low performance, because you will never win a game you don't enjoy. It's impossible. No matter how hard you try, you cannot compete against people that are actually going to work, to have fun, to really fulfill themselves, to feel alive. If this, which is why there's self-efficacy is so correlated with entrepreneurship and another, and I think that's highly correlated with entrepreneurial spirit is thinking that your own value is not recognized by the marketplace, right? That's also a highly correlated trait. Right. And that comes from that ability to commit to a process, but a process that is driven by a goal is, is it's, it's quite hard to really grasp the significance of what just said, right? You need a goal, but that goal needs to be just that a goal an objective. And it has to be a set of characteristics so that it is the process that emanates from there. It's clear. It's obvious. And self-mastery is, self-mastery, which is the folk way of talking about peak performance in a way, right? I like to envision peak performance as self-mastery driven by data. There's a story by, who is this guy? You know, this terrible internet marketers that they change their name every... (laughs) every five years he was called a 50 billion man and now it's called uh uh, dan pena dan pena has a story he's an old man now he has a country castle in scotland he has all over youtube just like Dan log and all those folks but i I, there was i was sent an interesting video in which he says that self-improvement as itself was born when a Clement something, I don't know who he, I I don't remember the exact name, who had an insurance business in the US in the 1950s and 60s needed to sell premium to their clients. Mm. He had a new revenue stream, but he had something that could be sold, but their improvements could not be tracked. So basically fluff, or in a way things that were not easy to prove, right? and that's how self-improvement first came about and i i haven't really dug deep into this but new agey stuff all that you know this 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 all around of that probably emanates from the from the same source from the same place of yeah, yeah but how do you know this is true how can you prove it Mm. i'm not saying that you need to prove everything for it to be real i'm not that kind of reductionist but I'm saying that you obviously need to have a data-driven process to make sure that you're actually improving. Because anything else is just intellectual masturbation, which yeah. is fine by itself, but it's
0: a different thing. Yeah, otherwise, you just get into that situation where you're having, well, these kind of Twitter conversations. You're having Twitter conversations about whether it's better to get up at 5 a.m. versus getting up at 10 a.m. And you, For what? Yeah, you're having conversations about the philosophy of Aristotle versus Marcus Aurelius. It doesn't really matter. It's just whichever one works for you. And even then, you only need to read the bits that are important to you. You don't need to know their entire history. You don't need to read everything they've ever done. Otherwise, like you said, it is mental masturbation. It's a common thread I've seen, and I went through it myself as well, when I first started getting into self improvement stuff, you end up throwing yourself so far off the cliff of wanting to be better at everything that you go away and consume everything, and then you're getting up at five a.m. on a morning, you're journaling on a morning, you're meditating, you're getting some exercise in, and before it's even nine a.m., you've done a work day before you even actually have to go do do the work, and you get so embedded in this idea of self-improvement, that it becomes your entire focus of life rather than improving performance. The the end goal becomes self-improvement, but you aren't actually improving yourself, ironically enough. All, you do, you don't try it. all you're doing is doing the things that everybody else is doing around you, but for no reason. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but there's a legit, there's a legit, um there's probably a phase that everybody needs to go through which is okay i'm trying i'm reading all these books i'm trying to really figure out something that works for me that's that's probably a phase we're all been through Mm -hmm. but at some point you need to graduate right and you need to okay what's 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 actually true here what do i believe is true and how much of what i believe is true is actually serving my needs or my my goals right and how much as Bruce Lee said, discard anything, uh, discard what it's not useful, and keep for yourself what works for you, All right? Which is why we start a conversation saying that, that, that it's a, it's the human striving uh, revolves around becoming better, which in a way is also a mythical theme. It's also re- co- correlated with religion. It's, I mean, it's interwoven in the fabric of humanity, right? So it's good to. Do it, but let's also make it useful. Let's also track if it's actually helping you or not. Because, as you said, there's people that have a full work day before 9 a.m., but then they crash in the afternoon and (laughs) they never really accomplish much. Like, so for what? Like, what I I have a friend who's a mathematician, and every time we have a philosophical argument, his question ends up being, Yeah, but for what? So what are what are we optimizing the system for? And his way of thinking has really influenced my way of thinking. When I'm when we're drafting a new system for for, for a client or something else or whatever, it's okay. But what's what's the goal here? What is it? What are you trying? What are, in order to understand the levers that we need to pull and the performance bottlenecks that we need to liberate, what are we need to understand what we're optimizing for. Now I want to be the best. Yeah, hang on, hang on, three months. What's the goal? what's not working. Right. But if you do that only we, uh, this, only th- by doing this for long enough, you enhance your aqua receptors, your self-awareness, you train your mind to see your own deficiencies, which is as to say, said, which is the, 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 this guy, the guy from flow, the guy that invented the the, the term flow, w- mm. which has been probably thrown around a thousand times. Um, some people equate flow to peak performance, and I don't agree with that. But that's an, another thing for some other day. He said that the mark of the expert is the ability to provide objective feedback to yourself, and that's a great way of putting it. The way when you are able to not bullshit yourself, you've probably won. The, you've won the, the, the game. But that's hard. I, who said that? I think it's Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger. The first rule is to move, is to not fool anybody, and the second rule is that the easiest person to fool is yourself, right? I just linked this to Charlie Munger and T. S. Halley, but it makes sense, right? So yeah. to not bullshit yourself—that's a worthy lifetime goal.
0: I, I think that's a beautiful way to end. We've we've gone <laughs> we've gone for an hour and ten nearly. Uh, okay
1: that was that was quick <laughs>
0: oh man I, I could i enjoy it a lot i could talk, i could talk to you for hours but i i don't i don't want it to uh put that on somebody else to have to listen to it for hours <laughs>
1: <laughs> it was really great uh to be here with you today i enjoyed myself a lot this podcasting is fun isn't it
0: <laughs> it is that's why i've done 200 episodes man it's awesome <laughs> especially these kind of long-form conversations have you got anything you want to finish on any more sage no. wisdom no
1: uh, i'm good thank you very much for your attention hopefully this was useful for anybody that is listening and wish you all the best with your podcast 200 is quite a high number so congrats on that it's not not easy but again persistence big goals and make high performance all the way thanks man
0: consistency and discipline consistency and discipline it's what it's and all eyes about. on the prize eyes on the prize Thanks a lot. Let's speak again soon.
1: Good stuff. Thank you very much.